But open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be closing out this letter from Paul to his dear friends this morning. And if you are using the blue pew Bibles, that is on page 982. And as we come to God's word, let us first go to him in prayer. Lord, we are always reminded of our need for you as we come to your word. For as we read earlier, the word goes out and some of it falls along the path and is quickly snatched away. Sometimes it falls on ready soil, but is choked out by the cares of this world. And sometimes it is received and bears fruit. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would let this word fall on ready hearts and that you would cause it to bear fruit. Pray all of this for the sake of your people, that we would grow to look more like Christ and that we would glorify your name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, I will be beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians yourselves, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. In Christ Jesus, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May it do its work this morning in our hearts. Uh, and I know I am a week early. Advent starts next week, but let me just say Merry Christmas. Uh, know as you go out, the stores are already for the last two months been selling their Christmas decorations. Uh, the lights are already up in downtown Kalamazoo. The Potter household, our Christmas tree goes up the Friday after Thanksgiving. So here we are. Merry Christmas to you all. And as much as I love the Christmas season, the Advent season, the preparation, the, the just focusing on the coming of Christ and being reminded of all that he has done. As wonderful as that season is, it seems that with all of the festivities, all of the cheer, the Christmas season also is marked by another sort of unstated expectation. 
It's the ubiquitous plea all around us for donations and for us to consider our year of end giving campaigns. The Salvation Army ringers are already manning their posts at their cauldrons. Every purchase that you make, you now have the option to round up for the charity of your business's choice. Emails coming from all sorts of businesses and ministries that you didn't even know existed asking you to consider your year-end giving. Even sometimes pastors standing before congregations offering pleas to help the church finally make its budget. Now, on that last point, thankfully, there is no need. You all as a church have been incredibly generous, incredibly faithful, and so this is not a sermon uh, appealing to you to help us make our year-end budget. And even if the budget was looking thin heading into December, I think as a pastor, would be hard-pressed to turn the preaching of God's word into a simple appeal for more money. But in this text, it's entirely something different anyways. This, this text is one, just the next text in the letter to the Philippians that began preaching many months ago, not knowing when we would end. And this text is not Paul making an appeal for more giving to his ministry. This text is Paul providing thanksgiving to his dear friends and helping them understand the nature of their relationship to him in light of their giving. So as we come to this text, we recognize it's, it's not about tithing to your local church, even though there is much to be said about that. There's much overlap between giving to the church and what Paul is talking about. We recognize that this is a text that helps us understand what is taking place when we give to those who are doing gospel ministry vocationally, who are full-time evangelists and, and missionaries. That's really what is taking place in this passage. Sort of put it in contemporary context. We assume that the Philippians were, were presumably faithfully tithing to the church in Philippi, and, and now they were given the opportunity to meet the needs of Paul, the missionary that had been sent out from their congregation. And so we can learn much from Paul's letter of thanksgiving about what is taking place when we, as Christians, give to support other missionaries and vocational ministers today, evangelists, those doing ministry in, in many different contexts. That is what we can gain from this letter. And as I've been just reflecting on this passage this week and, and how do we understand it? Uh, I've just been reminded that uh, in God's providence, I spent the better part of six, seven years doing ministry where I had to raise my own support from, from outside donors to help meet my salary needs. And when I was making the decision about whether or not to enter into that ministry opportunity, do you know what the, the biggest obstacle that was holding me back in pursuing that was 
it, it wasn't that I was going to be doing campus ministry and that that wasn't a, a pastoral position. And so I thought that would be a lesser role. That's not what held me back. It, it wasn't that I thought, you know, support raising was going to be really hard and my future would be uncertain. That was probably the second barrier that I had, but that wasn't the main barrier. That felt easy to trust God with that part. The main barrier that kept me back from wanting to pursue this, though ultimately I overcame that barrier, was that I didn't want to feel like I had to go to all of my family and my friends and and simply ask for handouts and, and then people would just feel guilty for Sarah and my cute little kids and would give me money to help feed them. That was my impression of what I would be doing if I entered into this ministry position and had to raise support, that I'd just be going around, poor Ryan, well, let's let's take care of them. But as I learned and prayed and studied, mostly learned from this passage here in Philippians, that that assumption that I had, that I'm just going to be going around asking for handouts, That assumption could not be farther from the truth of what Paul is describing takes place in this relationship between the missionary and their supporters. We must recognize that giving to Christian ministries is not a mere financial transaction of uh, of giving handouts to somebody in need. No, giving to Christian ministries is a gospel partnership done in worship to the glory of God. It's vastly different from my own preconceived notions and what I'm wondering that many of us still have those same ideas. No, giving to Christian ministries is a partnership done in worship to the glory of God. So as you consider for your own households and own giving, even now, the the possible giving opportunities that you have. I hope that you will begin to think of them in these same parts that we see in this letter. That'll be the outline of our sermon, these four parts that Paul describes, that when you give, a partnership is established, fruit is reaped, worship is performed, and dividends are received. That's what's taking place as we give. So we will study those each in turn. So a partnership is established. Again, if you were anything like me, this is probably the point in the sermon that will be the most transformational uh, this morning. The, the, The point that we probably have the most misconceptions about. Again, we, we probably think something like this. You have a person who's doing ministry. They need money, so they ask. I write a check. Now they need less money, and we can each go our separate ways. But again, sit with the language that that Paul has used throughout this letter to describe the relationship between him and the Philippians. Even in this passage, verse 14, he opened. It was kind of you to share my trouble. What's his trouble? he, He is lacking provision as he sits in prison, and so they've shared that trouble with him. And you Philippians yourselves know the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and in receiving. So how does he describe the relationship? He describes it as a partnership. 
He uses that same language as he opened the letter in chapter 1. In verse 3, he said, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This isn't simply a financial transaction where handouts are just being doled out. The way Paul refers to the Philippians, it's not just about friendship. It's not just about patron and benefactor receiving their giving. He specifically calls them partners. There's a connection there, partners in the gospel. And this partnership isn't simply a reference to them being both united to Christ and members of the same body and their partners in that sense. That's not what Paul is referring to. Throughout this section, he's using the, the language of, of commerce, of financial transactions, indicating that they're in a, a joint business venture, for lack of a better term. They're business partners together. There's a connection there as, as they join together for a common purpose. As Paul has been preparing for his missionary journeys, they have been giving him the resources that he needs to go out and to freely minister that he, so that he's not hampered by his physical needs. That's the relationship that he's describing by their giving. And when they contribute these gifts, they're not simply providing handouts to a needy minister. They're entering into partnership in his work. His ministry is now their shared ministry. Where Paul goes and proclaims the gospel, they go through him and are proclaiming the gospel alongside of him as his partner. And so as you consider your own giving, the places that your money is going, yes, you absolutely recognize people have real needs, that they need to put food on the table, that they've, they've got a paycheck that needs to come, and you get to help meet those needs, absolutely. But let me encourage you to look beyond the mere financial transaction and to recognize that you are investing in and partnering with them in their work. Again, when you contribute to overseas missionaries, you now have an overseas work that you are a part of. When you give to that campus worker, you're now going to campus with them so that freshmen can hear about Christ. And when we fully understand this partnership reality, it only deepens our, our relationship and our connection to those that we're supporting. It, it only makes the, the bonds to them that much stronger when we recognize what is really taking place. It, it allows us to feel more involved, more committed, and, and more joy as the gospel is being advanced. So we are partners in the work. And as we see, we also get to reap the reward of the fruit that is produced through the ministries that we partner with. See, 
verse 17 is a very curious description of the transaction that is taking place in this partnership. It says, not that I seek the gifts. So he's just got done thanking them, talking all about all of the giving that they've been doing throughout his ministry. Saying, thank you. Saying, not that I'm after that, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Again, first half of that verse is really easy. Paul's main concern isn't their financial giving. Yes, he has needs and he's thankful for that, but that's not what he's seeking most. He rejoices in their partnership with them, but he wants to guard against the charge that he's using them for his own personal gain. And so he says his chief concern is not their money, but it is the fruit that increases to their credit. That phrase is curious, the way Paul puts it. And I think there are two possible interpretations of what Paul means when he refers to the fruit that is increasing. What's the fruit that Paul is seeking? Well, the first possible interpretation is that the fruit is sort of the fruit of righteousness. Paul used that phrase in chapter 1, verse 11, as he prays for the Philippians to grow. And, And Paul could be saying that their, their giving to him has a sanctifying aspect. That is, they give, they're bearing more fruit, and that fruit is, is growing and increasing, and it's increasing to their account. In other words, God sees them walking by faith, growing in generosity and in, in sacrifice, and, and that giving adds to the evidence that they truly have been saved, and then they're walking by the Spirit. That's one interpretation, that's a position that most commentators, in, in fact, take. And, and as commentators discuss this passage, they, they all agree that there is, again, commercial language that is clearly being continued. The, the, the increasing fruit is a word that's used to describe a, a bountiful harvest or a profit that is coming in. So that profit is increasing and it's added to their account. It's credited to them. And all of the theological principles I outlined are are true no matter what this passage is referring to. You can go to other places in the Bible and see that giving by faith is an act of faith. It's an act of worship. And that as we live out our faith, that is adding to the evidence that we have been saved. So that is certainly true. I just don't think that's what Paul has in mind in these verses. Instead, I think the fruit that he's referencing is the same fruit that he describes in chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, in speaking of living to be Christ and dying as gain, he says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And what's the fruitful labor there that Paul is referring to? What's the the bountiful harvest? It's the same word used in all three places. Well, there, the fruitful ministry is the fruit of his proclaiming the gospel. And so as the Philippians give to Paul, he is then free to go and preach the gospel, which then produces fruit in the salvation of the lost. 
And then that fruit is increasing. More people are coming to know Jesus. And that increase is credited to the Philippians because they are partners in the gospel with him. That's what I think Paul is saying to the Philippians, saying, I'm not after your money per se. I'm after being free to go and proclaim the gospel. And then that fruit of the gospel in people's lives is credited back to you. And if we reject this second interpretation in favor of the first, again, the fruit there is just their own sanctification, I'm afraid that we lose the entire point of the partnership in the first place. Again, if Paul's chief aim in their giving is simply their sanctification, then what stops him from simply being the televangelist who just goes around telling Christians, well, hey, if you give to me, then God's going to richly bless you. And and as you give, I, I get to say I'm really concerned about your sanctification, that you just contribute to my ministry. God's going to contribute to your account. And you think, well, okay, Paul, what, I'll contribute to your ministry. What's the goal of your ministry? Well, it's helping sanctify Christians through their financial stewardship. That's what I'm seeking. But again, Paul always connects their partnership to him, to his gospel ministry, to to the proclamation and defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so we would assume that his goal in their partnership would be the fruit of the gospel and the salvation of the lost. And that as that fruit abounds, as Paul goes and proclaims and more people come to faith, even in this letter, how does he open it? What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As all of that fruit grows, the Philippians, by virtue of their connection to Paul's ministry, receive just as much credit for that fruit as he does. Why? Because they've sent him. They're partners with him in this gospel. For anyone here, if you ever come to faith through the efforts of a vocational evangelist, somebody who makes a living by proclaiming the gospel, you can get a sense for this gratitude, this fruit being credited back to the Philippians. That you just have this thankfulness for the person who brought you to faith, who spent their life laboring that you might know Christ. I think I will always have thankfulness in my heart for a man named Pat Riley, who 18, 20 years ago now, put up with an obnoxious, prideful, arrogant 16-year-old kid and, and patiently, week after week, talked to him about Jesus. And, and now, obviously, we recognize that somebody goes and proclaims the gospel, that God is ultimately the one at work. God is the one changing hearts. God is the one who who plants the seed and, and raises it and bears fruit. We recognize that, but he does all of that through the proclamation of the gospel by faithful servants. And so we rightly can look back on our own stories and be thankful to the men and women that God used in our own lives to express thanksgiving to them. So, so, so I say to Pat, Thank you for putting up with me and laboring faithfully and proclaiming the gospel to me that I might come and believe. Pat can rightly say and go back and thank all of the people who sent me to make that 
possible. Those, those supporters, those people are just as much the reason that I've come to faith as he is. So we should all rejoice, every one of us, when our missionaries and our evangelists have success, because that means that we too are having success. Our team is winning. That's also, again, why as, as a church and, and, and the mission committee is, is working more and more to help connect the work that our, our missionary partners are doing around the world and, and here in the state of Michigan and at Western, they're trying to connect all of what they're doing back to the congregation so you can know what's happening, so you can know how to pray, but also so you can know how to rejoice, how to praise God for what he's done through this church should never be the case that those that, that you support aren't reporting back to you their joys because th those ought to be your joys as well. Their wins are your wins. You should want to know what is happening on the ground so that you can celebrate with your partners and share in the fruit of the harvest. That fruit is increasing to your credit. So you should want to know and praise God for what he is doing through you as well. So we see that this partnership that we have with these ministries, that the fruit that's being born, we've seen now the horizontal aspects of that giving. But as always, we recognize that whatever we do in the Christian life does not just have horizontal, person-to-person -person aspects. There's also vertical aspects to everything that we do. Paul doesn't just describe their gift as meeting his needs. How else does he describe it? So I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Those gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Again, as we, we saw last week, that is worship language. And just as the Israelites would come day after day and week after week and bring their offerings to be sacrificed on the altar at the temple, the smoke from those offerings would rise up to heaven. So our giving is seen as a sacrifice rising up to God's throne room where, where he takes in the aroma of our faithfulness and our trust in him. And again, we're not saying it's been the practice in some churches throughout history that, that your giving is somehow a sacrifice for your sin and somehow remits your guilt. That is not the language Paul is using. But we do recognize that there is a sacrifice in the sense that we are declaring that God is more valuable than the money that we are giving away for his kingdom. Again, when you bring your bull to the altar, you no longer have a bull. When you bring your offerings before God, you no longer have those finances. Giving to the kingdom, it, it does cost you something. So it is a sacrifice in that sense. So there's certainly other things that you could buy with the money or the tithe that, that you're giving to other ministries. 
But as you give, you're saying that God is worthy to receive those gifts, even if you have to go without, without the extra vacation or the lower trim level on your car, or even just a more disciplined trip to the grocery store week after week because you are sacrificially giving to the Lord. And as we think about that, I want us to remember, it's helpful to recognize that your amount of worship in your giving is determined by the amount of faith in your giving, not the amount of dollars in your giving. It's helpful to think, God, I don't have a lot to give. We must not be worshiping very much. Think of what Jesus says in the Gospels of the widow who comes and contributes her two copper coins in the offering. Compares that to all those who bring large sums of money. He says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, I do not know what anyone in this church contributes to the offering. That is by design. Don't need to know what people are giving. I don't know what ministries any of you are giving to. Again, we cannot judge whether someone is giving faithfully by the amount that is left over after they're done. Okay, we, we, again, the worship in our giving is determined by the amount of faith in our giving. How, how much are we trusting God with it? How, how much are we wanting to sacrifice before the Father? And so as we think about what we are giving, I, I always encourage brothers and sisters to ask God to pray. Okay, what does faithfulness mean for me, for my family, for my household? And then if in your prayers, you can come before God and ask him and walk away with conviction that you're honoring God with your finances, then praise be to God. But we also don't want to let a perceived lack of ability to give to keep you from giving. I specifically in mind, have you children? Elementary school, high schoolers, maybe you have a part-time job, college students, you're just trying to get your way through school. It can be tempting to think, I, I don't have much to contribute, so what's the point? The church's budget will be just fine without my few copper coins from my babysitting money. But the point is that even now, God wants you to practice the habit of worshiping him through your finances. It's not something you learn later in life. It is a discipline that you establish now to worship God, to, to declare to God that I love you more than my money. Can your worship is determined by the faith in your giving, not the amount of the dollars of your giving. And again, kids, think of it this way, that you are about to receive a treasure trove, gifts, money from grandparents for Christmas. I want you to ask yourself over these next few weeks, what would worshiping God 
with those gifts look like this year? What would faithfulness to God look like in the coming weeks? Young or old, rich or poor, we must always remember that giving is ultimately about worship of God and not simply budget lines and material needs. Lastly, we see that as we give, as we worship, as we partner, we too receive dividends from our investments. So what do we exactly receive in return for investments in the kingdom? Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just as Paul said that his needs were met in the previous paragraph, says they're, they're met by Jesus. We talked about that last week. He says the Philippians too are going to have their needs met according to the riches in glory in Christ. And, and here we, we have a little bit of extra exegetical information than we did last week. Paul talked about being strengthened in Christ. He's learned the secret to contentment. Here we see the riches that God is going to supply them with are riches in glory. Again, we're reminded of the heavenly nature, the heavenly element of our rewards. Again, Paul is not saying, as some want to twist these words, that if you give to me, then God's going to bless you here on earth tenfold. Just sow this little seed of promise, and God's going to make all your financial dreams come true. He's providing them the same certainty of contentment in Christ that he has just put on display in the previous verses. That as they faithfully and sacrificially give as they lay up their treasures in heaven, the God who possesses all the riches of heaven is preparing to reward them. And that reward in heaven will be so great that it will dwarf any need and any joys that they could produce here on earth in their own financial Gain. That, that is what Paul is pointing them to, to a reward that is far greater than anything they could have here on earth. The reason that we are so free to give of ourselves, free to give of our possessions here on earth, is because we know that we have a better possession awaiting us in heaven. And the constant reminder of those possessions, the constant pointing heavenward is the hope that we have in that day that we will see Christ face to face and that that will be the secret to our contentment here as we wait on earth. That is what Paul is pointing them to. That is what is coming for the Philippians. All of the needs that they have are going to be supplied in Christ. They, too, get to learn the secret of contentment waiting on him. So what do we make of all of this? What do we do with this? And maybe this has been nothing new for you, and you just continually, cheerfully give, worshiping the Lord. 
But maybe the Lord is, is stirring, helping you reconsider your financial priorities. You're trying to think, how do I faithfully steward what the Lord has given to me? And then you think about all of the opportunities that are out there. I already mentioned that we're just bombarded this time of year with many ways that we could give. It just feels overwhelming sometimes of all the needs that we could potentially meet. I mean, even last week, I mentioned to us that being stirred up to want to give, you can talk to the missions committee, you can talk to folks at campus outreach, that, that's already over a dozen ways for you to give. That, that can feel a little overwhelming. So how do we discern then where our money ought to go? How do we put these things into practice if we're feeling stirred to give? I'm going to give us four helpful points. And before I do, readily admit that this is more my own perspective than an exegesis of the text. So if you don't find this helpful, you can throw it away. But this is the advice that I have given, give to myself when I consider supporting different ministries. Let's say first, begin praying. Pray through all the different biblical passages on giving. Begin praying, asking God to, to, to help you think about your finances rightly, that they would begin to come into conformity with his word. So pray, study, seek the Lord. Ask him to work in your heart and to sanctify you with your finances. Second, I want to remember that giving to various ministries should never replace regular tithing to your local church. And then not just saying that self-servingly, that's the advice that I've always given, even raising my own support. Nowhere do we see any of Paul's instructions about these types of ministry offerings replacing or coming out of the Christian's regular tithe. So that's second. So, so we always think of our giving to other ministries above and beyond what we give to the local church. Third, again, continue to pray, but pray now to develop priorities for where you want your money to go. What do you feel strongly about? What do you feel drawn towards? And obviously it should be the gospel, but, but what types of context do you want to see the gospel at work in? Again, maybe it's the campus. Maybe it's an underprivileged youth. Maybe it's in church planning. Maybe a particular overseas population. But again, if we understand our giving as an act of partnership, then you have to ask, what types of works do you want to partner in? Where do you want to be doing work alongside of those laborers? And what's helpful is that once you discern that question and, and where you want to be a part of, now you know the types of opportunities that you want to seek and what types of opportunities you can feel free to say no to so you can pursue what God is calling you to pursue. So if someone approaches me and says, I've got this wonderful ministry that, that you can give to, you get to come alongside of those who are knitting sweaters for dogs in animal shelters, I can say, thanks, but no thanks. 
Lord's calling you to that ministry. Great. He's not calling me to join that work. That's not the burden that he has given me. And so now I'm free to pursue the burdens that I do have. So you discern what do you get excited about? And then fourth, after you have sensed that call, then you pray for opportunities to partner with those who are doing that work. And then ask God what faithfulness to that work would currently look like. Again, developing those giving priorities isn't meant to be a shield so that you can always say no and think, ah, oh, I'm looking for just the right thing. And we develop the priorities so that when the opportunity arises, you are free to say yes and free to more fully invest in that work. Because again, if giving is meant to be sacrificial and meant to, to hurt a little bit, if I say yes to everything, well, then it's going to hurt more than we can bear. But if there's a specific ministry and you think, ah, I really want to get behind that, then you're free to, to sacrifice. You know why you're carrying that hurt, why you're willing to give up something so that you can see the gospel go forward there. Investing, not just as financiers to some charity case, but investing as partners in the ministry. We're partnering alongside those tasked with claim the gospel. We're joining with them in prayer and rejoicing alongside of them as God works through them. That's why we discern where God is calling us. And then we look for those opportunities and we go and we invest and we partner. So the gospel can go forward and gospel can be proclaimed so that we can be free to sacrificially and joyfully worship God through our giving. And we can be free to look ahead to our eternal award that awaits us in Christ. That is how our giving ought to look. That is how we ought to think of partnering with those in ministry. So we can see the gospel go forward and that we can rejoice in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do again thank you for your word. We thank you for the laborers that you have raised up to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to partner with them and go to various places so that Jesus can be proclaimed. And we ask that you would use this tiny church to do a great work around the world in our state, and our campus, and that we would get to rejoice at all that you have done through us. Oh, help us rightly think about our finances. Help us rightly think about partnering in this work and give us a joy in what you are doing. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.